You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. And I'd now like to um, call to the stage uh, Ambassador Paula Dobryansky, who is going to lead our next panel, which will feature U.S. government officials who've been on the front lines in trying to deal with these problems, talking about their experiences. Ambassador Dobryansky was Under Secretary of State uh, for uh, Global uh, Policy, um, uh, well known, I'm sure, to all of you. Uh, so let's welcome her in the next panel. Good morning, everyone. I'm Paula Dobriansky, and I had the privilege of uh, serving on the uh, task force. And I'm very excited about uh, this particular panel because uh, we are uh, going to be looking at uh, the actual implementation part of it. And we have a very distinguished set of practitioners, long tenured, uh, who really, I think we're going to have a lot to say and hopefully will even produce maybe a little bit of, uh, of debate and discussion uh, here. Our theme, particularly uh, in this panel, is focused on prioritizing prevention across the US government. And I think, as you saw in the previous panel, uh, we heard uh, argued that while we've defeated terrorists since 9-11, we haven't stemmed the uh, tide of uh, terrorism overseas. And in fact, the number of terrorist attacks per year has increased fivefold uh, since then. We also heard in that panel discussion uh, that there is a really strong case for adopting a comprehensive U.S. prevention strategy. The term, as we know, a whole-of-government approach is key to responding to uh, this growing threat, and also one that obviously is going to require really a new way of thinking, structuring, and executing uh, U.S. foreign policy. So with that backdrop, let me not only welcome our panelists, but I'm going to introduce all of them up front. And they're, going to, they're seated in the order in which I will be introducing them. Um, and then we'll proceed with uh, questions. So right here to my uh, right is Dr. Denise uh, Natali, who is the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the Department of State. She previously served as the director of the Center for Strategic Research at the Institute for National uh, Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. And she has more than 30 years of experience in post-conflict relief, reconstruction, and stabilization. And now next to her is U.S. Army Lieutenant General Michael Nagata, who is Director of the Strategic Operational Planning at the National Counterterrorism Center. And he also served as the Head of Special Operations Command Central from June 2013 to October 2015. 
And then next to General Nagata, we have Chris Milligan, who serves as the counselor at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He's a longtime Foreign Service uh, member, and uh, I would also just add, I know one of your last postings, at least where I've intersected with you, was in Burma, where you really had uh, quite a handful at that time. It was an important time and a time of transition. And then we have Alina Romanowski, who serves as Principal Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department, where she serves uh, and oversees uh, the coordination and integration of the department's international efforts to advance specific counterterrorism and counterviolent extremism policies. So all of you, we're truly delighted that you are here, and let's go forth. So Dr. Natali, let me begin with you. What do you see as the critical elements of an effective preventive uh, strategy, you know, addressing fragility as a root cause of violent extremism and instability? We'd welcome your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador, for, for this introduction. And I'd like to thank the United States Institute of Peace, particularly President Lindbergh, for this gracious invitation, and more importantly, this very significant event today. Uh, there's three, I would approach this as three key ways that I would address and that my bureau, the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, addresses state fragility. First, uh, we need to articulate very clearly why this is a national security priority. Fragile states are important or they're critical because they enable the growth of radical extremism, they incubate transnational organized crime, they stifle economic growth, they spread pandemic disease, and they prompt destabilizing um, migration flows. So these are why this is important to the United States. The second part of this is establishing a very clear definition and policy framework. And to this end, uh, the, the CSO and USAID, the State Department and USA, have been working to come together to create a, a, a clear definition or what we agree upon as a definition of conflict prevention. And this is, I will frame this as a limited one. That is to say, conflict prevention as a deliberate effort to disrupt likely pathways to the outbreak, escalation, or recurrence of violent conflict. Now you're going to see me make this theme throughout, and, and that is we're looking and prefer a limited definition. Why this is limited, it's something that can be measured and managed. And throughout this uh, th this morning's breakfast and this after just this first panel, we've heard very important ideas about you know preventing um, you know making societies more resilient, um, good you know good governance. How do we get at root causes? These are all very important. But if we don't manage this and have this into a very clear and measurable way of addressing this, then uh, it's going to make this very important task moot. And the third, the third part of a strategy, and this is, is the most important, I think, is to apply the guiding principles laid out by this administration to prioritize, target, and be disciplined about our conflict prevention strategies. We must determine where there's instability, where, where there is a priority to our national security interests, where our adversaries are exploiting fragility to counter these interests. And I'd like to turn to specifically uh, the Stabilization Assistance Review, which is, I would say, the, the framework in which the State Department 
is addressing things like uh, fragile states, stabilization, and that is part of a larger foreign assistance realignment. Why is this important? Because we have clear criterion in which we're going to address these types of problems. One of them is, is there burden sharing? Do we have not only international partners, but do we have private sector, local partners that we're working with? Are we holding our local partners accountable? Most importantly, establishing clear metrics of success. This must be an evidence-based, quantifiably measurable exercise, or else we will not be able to continue this. It's not a, an open-ended process. So again, po clear policy outcomes, but making sure that these are linked to quantifiable, measurable um, outcomes. Thank you. How, let me just do a follow-up. How, given what you've just said, which are very clear, specific uh, points that you've made, how uh, does that correlate with the report's recommendations? Uh, where's the overlap? This, there is a lot of overlap, and then we're just taking it a bit farther. I, I clearly support the idea of having a clear division of labor so that we don't duplicate efforts. So for example, again, I'll take some of the best practices of the SAR, uh, dividing the division of labor between State Department, USAID, and the Department of Defense. State as the lead, USAID as the lead implementer, and DOD as a supporting role. We are continuing to implement that type of division of labor. I will take it a bit farther, though, by saying if we don't have clearly measurable indicators of what it means to get at the root causes. Root causes can go three and four times removed, and this can go on to be a never-ending process, and we don't want to lose this important effort. So this is going to be difficult, we know it, but again, my bureau is starting this process by establishing this strategy, by creating what the metrics are, how are we going to operationalize this, and how are we going to measure this, because in this environment, this can't be an open-ended project. Thank you. Metrics were certainly an important part uh, and something during the deliberations which weighed heavily in, you know, our thinking. So uh, glad you've highlighted a number of those points. General Nagata, let me, let me turn to you. Um, we know that, uh, in fact, both the 2017 uh, national Security Strategy and then the 2018 National Defense Strategy, they both focused on China and Russia as being long-term, uh, or not long-term, but strategic competitors, uh, and looking at long-term strategic competition with them. And that's a, a priority, uh, and it's a, been a principal priority for the U.S. military. And also, we have the Global Coalition, which announced that it had retaken all the territory once held by the Islamic State, and the U.S. is now in the process of drawing down its presence in Syria. So a question for you, just looking at the broad arena, how does this geostrategic competition um, uh, uh, between and among uh, uh, these powers intersect with the primary and principal concerns of the task force, the spread of violent extremism. Uh, give us your thinking on that. Thank you for the question. Uh, before I begin, I just want to add my compliments uh, and my own small amount of commendation to the members of the task force that have labored for so long to create um, the, the, the proposals, the ideas, uh, and the initiatives that hopefully will create greater progress for us in the future. Um, Regarding your question, in my view, uh, and, and in my current position, I'm, I'm a counterterrorism strategist, 
in my view, the degree to which our and the international's community struggle with violent extremism, uh, the number of ways in which it intersects, is interrelated with, and is entangled with our aspirations to achieve our other national security objectives, including the, uh, what I would call, at least at present, a, a war of influence uh, with other peer competitors, um, are, are almost too numerous to count. Um, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes we sometimes make is we try to, we try to act as if the, our struggle with violent extremism and these other national security imperatives operate on different islands or on different planets. They are deeply entangled with each other. And I'll, I'll try to explain or at least to give a few examples why I believe this is true. And, and we, ju we just don't have the luxury of, of, of trying to segment or segregate these into discrete approaches, we have to have an approach that deals with the fact that these are entangled. But let, let me try to elaborate briefly. Um, I'll try to use a, what I consider to be a useful model, and that is the, the, the net assessment of model of trying to see our national security problems through the, lens, uh, through the three lenses of red, green, and blue. Red being the adversary or the security challenge we're trying to deal with, green being the environment we're dealing in, whether it's the physical or sociological or economic or political environments, and then finally ourselves, which often is the most difficult part to analyze because nobody likes to look at themselves really hard. You might not like what you see. But I'll, I'll give you three examples of what I'm talking about. First of all, in my view, violent extremists, whether it is a very large, powerful movement like the Islamic State or its other more local uh, forms of terrorism, some of which may not be religiously motivated and they may be, they may be pursuing some other form of ideology. Um, but all of them are finding new opportunities because of the reemergence of this contest over influence among sovereign states. Um, and, and these opportunities are to be found in changes in the environment that this contest is creating. I'll list three of them. The contest among peer competitors is creating instability. That is a breeding ground for violent extremism. This contest among nation states is creating uncertainty. That is also an, a, a powerful growth medium for violent extremism. And in some cases, they're creating power vacuums. Um, and that is, again, a, a rich nutrient for violent extremism. So these opportunities in red are being created by changes in green. And then finally, um, it, it is inarguable, uh, as many people have pointed out to me, that both a new national security strategy and new national defense strategy require us to pay more attention to these peer competitor um, sovereign state challenges. I think the question before us is do we believe we can only juggle one ball at a time? There's an old adage that says nobody pays the man to juggle one ball. Um, or are we willing to undertake the more difficult task of dealing with both problems simultaneously with sufficient success that we actually meet our national security objectives? In my judgment right now, the jury is out on this. 
there's a fair amount of rhetoric that we're going to, but my job as a strategist is to actually examine things like how much money, how many people, how much risk tolerance, how much policy support is actually going into these things. And, and I, I frankly am wondering whether or not we are determined to juggle more than one just just one ball at a time. And I'll finish by mangling an old adage. I, I have been warned, since I live in the counterterrorism world, I've been, I've been warned by other people in the government who work on other parts of our national security challenge, look, Nagata, the days of, uh, of unlimited money and unlimited resources and unlimited support for counterterrorism are gone. We have other things to do. And here's how I answer that. I get it. And I, I'm not voting against having to deal with these very difficult, dangerous, non-terrorist security challenges we have. But at the risk of mangling a very old adage, we can be less interested in terrorism. That does not mean terrorists are less interested in us. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. It's not directly related to what you've, um, uh, how you've just responded and what you've just addressed. But I, I want to draw you out on something, because I've, I've had the benefit of hearing him speak a little bit earlier. Um, talk about definitions. Um, that was something that you, in looking at the report and being a practitioner, that was something that you had some views on. Yes, I'll just cherry pick a few things, otherwise I'll blather on too long here. Um, we are challenged in many different ways, not just in the United States government. I would argue this is a, this is a problem the entire international community faces. I'll give you one example. It's the word we've all gathered here to talk about today, the word prevention. Many people, and I'm, and I'm heartened by the fact that an increasing number of people both in our government and around the world, are talking about the need to do better at prevention. The problem I've dis I'm discovering is very few people mean the same thing. I am personally convinced, just in Washington, D.C. alone, if I went to a dozen of my peers in Washington, D.C., and asked all of them, do you believe prevention is important? I think they'd all say yes. But if I handed each of them a blank sheet of paper, and ask them to please write down your definition of what prevention means, I'm pretty sure I'd get 12 completely different answers. And that's a, that's a significant problem. If we, if, we, if, we, if we believe we're all talking about the same thing, but we're actually not, that's a recipe for arguments that we never solve. Um, because we're all, we're all basing our conversation on a false assumption that we're all talking about the same thing. Another example, um, it's come up recently, this has been a matter of public debate, so I might as well talk about it here. Have we defeated the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria? Depending on who, how you define the word defeat, the answer is yes or no. Now, as a former member of Operation Inherent Resolve, I think I can make a credible argument that military success has been achieved because the military goal was to wrest away territorial control by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They no longer own Mosul, they no longer own Raqqa, they no longer hold any territory in the Euphrates River Valley. So by that definition we've succeeded. But as I think by every, as everyone knows by now, there are still thousands of ISIS combatants scattered across both Iraq and Syria, they've reverted to an insurgency model that in some ways is still bigger than anything Al-Qaeda in Iraq was able to create. 
So, but through that lens, it's very difficult to call this success. So that's just two examples of where we're, in my humble opinion, we're a little lazy, we're a little sloppy about how we use our own language because we end up using terms that many of the people in the same conversation are not defining the same way. I do think it's not a panacea here, but I do think the emphasis on the whole of government approach is absolutely key uh, in this uh, uh, endeavor. That's another uh, thing nobody agrees on. What constitutes a whole, whole of government, government approach? approach. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, uh, Chris, I'm going to go to Chris next. Uh, Chris, uh, we know that USAID has done a really substantial work in recent years. In fact, to ensure that we're better positioned as a government to effectively prevent violent extremism and to address its root causes, and in particular, fragility and also the issue of dysfunction in state-society relations. Um, interestingly enough, USAID is going through a redesign, and Administrator Mark Green, in fact, called recently for the creation of a new Associate Administrator for Relief, Resilience, and Response who's to oversee a new Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization. And let me just mention one other, uh, because we want to hear from you about these. Um, he also launched a new strategic approach, uh, which is called the Journey to Self-Reliance, which aims to orient the agency's program and programming toward building capacity of countries to address their own development challenges. So tell us about these changes how does it relate to the core issues addressed by the tax task force on prevention, on dealing with uh, fragility, and addressing extremism? Thank you, Ambassador, and a big thanks as well to the task force members for the excellent report, and to USIP for hosting us here today. USAID is standing up three new bureaus, one on humanitarian assistance, another on resilience and food security, but the one we're here to talk about today is on conflict prevention and stabilization. And moving forward, standing up this new bureau really reinforces the findings of the task force report. One, for example, that the strategic environment continues to evolve and shift. USAID officers know that. The majority of our officers are serving in fragile states or states that are subject to violence. And as General Nagata mentioned, we are entering in a, a war of influence, or I'd say a competition of ideas as well, where competitor nations are want to reshape the world for their own benefit. And from our perspective, in doing so, that is undermining the investments we've had in good governance and in economic performance and increasing fragility. Um, the standing up of this new Bureau of Conflict Prevention and Stabilization also underscores the comparative advantage that an assistance agency can bring as part of a interagency effort to on prevention. Um, so what, what will it do, this new bureau? Importantly, it will provide us a more comprehensive and effective way of looking at prevention and CVE and advancing it. This new bureau will be a stronger partner for our field missions to support them. We've been rethinking our approach and our definition of CVE, and we realize it comes down to building that local capacity, building that capacity among governance, governments and communities to prevent and uh, address the challenges of violent extremism. So having a dedicated bureau 
on conflict prevention and stabilization will enable us to improve our ability to build that local capacity. We'll also be able to be more effectively match resources to policy objectives, and importantly, more effective learning so that we can use data better to des design impact early on into our programs. Finally, it will enable us to be a more effective interagency partner. We recognize uh, and uh, agree with the recommendation for a interagency architecture on prevention, and we're keen to engage in that. Um, the interagency needs a place where discuss frank discussions can be had, strategic priorities identified, discussion of risks can, can be put on the table. Um, and so there are many areas of the task force uh, report that we agree with and that we're moving forward on. So really in short, it's a very exciting time to be at USAID because we are implementing many of the, the thoughts and recommendations from the report. Let me push you a little bit on the, the new uh, architecture. In, in looking at what uh, AID did previously and then how this adds value and changes the direction, um, say a little bit more about that. I mean, do you see that as adding to more of a whole-of-government approach? Um, how does this change, you know, the work at AID? You've been long tenured there, and, right. and you know, you've had a, a, you have a good overview of where you've been and where you are and where, where the agency is going. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I have been with AID for 30 years, and I've worked in many conflict-affected states. Uh, you know, so whether it was standing up operations in Iraq or uh, refocusing our programs in Indonesia with the downfall of Suharto, What's happened at USAID is all our experiences in our programs and in our people. And standing up this new bureau is institutionalizing this more so that it's not just who you know, but actually it's, it's a discipline that we're going to double down on, focus on. And in doing so, we're moving forward and rethinking our approach to issues like prevention and CVE. Moving away from looking at different sectors or drivers to a local systems approach and then having a dedicated learning function to continue to improve our knowledge management of the issue so that we can, re so we can, we can build that impact into our existing programs. Well, that's good to hear, because I know in terms of the deliberations of the report, you know, there were several elements that were certainly highlighted. Metrics was certainly one, and you've mentioned that as well uh, here, bottom-up uh, approaches where those communities, local communities, are vested. It's not only about governance and from the top, but also about that vested interest and the bottom-up approach and the desire to actually have success for one's own welfare. But also, you just both, you mentioned it, you've mentioned it, uh, Dr. Natali, and that is the importance of uh, flexibility, uh, adaptability in this regard, because if you want to be sustainable, you can't have a rigid approach um, here. Let's go, thank you very much, let's go to Alina. Um, Alina, as I mentioned, you know, your current capacity, uh, you're responsible for coordinating U.S. government efforts to counter violent extremism, counterterrorism priorities. And, you know, a big issue here is, well, how do you prioritize? How do you prioritize prevention activities um, you know, that usually take a long time to yield results. You're under pressure, and if they are successful, um, uh, you know, what if they don't actually yield 
uh, visible evidence of their success. Uh, and especially now, there are a lot of crises afoot. So it's not an easy question to address, but how do you deal and make prevention a policy priority? How do you deal with those kinds of tensions that I've mentioned? Well, thanks, Paula, for the question. And, um, and also, thank you very much, uh, Nancy and USIP and the task force for pulling together a really good set of, um, of experts um, to not only produce a report that's very thoughtful, but also created a, a platform for us to continue the discussion. Because from the Counterterrorism Bureau's point of view, this threat, um, the terrorist threat that's facing the United States, is, is evolving. And it's been evolving, and I think we need a platform to be able to talk about, you know, prevention and other aspects of the counterterrorism strategy that the United States is is um, is is engaged in. And I'd like to pull to answer your question, Paul. I'd like to pull a little bit on a General Nagata's thread, which is it's really in many cases all about the definition of prevention, because if you look at it from the um, counterterrorism bureau's point of view, which is to pull all sorts of threads. We could say in, uh, that, the, that prevention, which really is um, in many ways to prevent terrorists radicalizing, mobilizing, inspiring, but is that just soft power or could that also be a complement to the hard power? So how do, we, how do we define in many ways prevention? Is it also prevent, do you prevent terrorists from radicalizing, recruiting, mobilizing by also uh, engaging in strong law enforcement, in, um, in discussions on, on ideology? Do you also um, uh, look at, at uh, detention and prosecution? All of those are components of what we look at in the Counterterrorism Bureau, which in some ways are components of prevention. Uh, we can all we can argue that we can discuss that, but in in our definition, it would be very much those components of addressing the th uh, the terrorist threat. Which I want to remind people when you look at that landscape, it's not just ISIS and it's not just those terrorists that come out of fragile states. It's um, let's not forget the, that the Iran uh, regime remains one of the foremost state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, and now, as we saw both uh, in Christchurch and then in Sri Lanka, you have another sort of ethnocentric uh, a group of terrorists that are emerging. They may get support from ISIS, they may get support from Al-Qaeda, they may get support, but their perspective on what they're doing is also something that we need to, uh, to address, and the prevention um, aspects may be very different in, in dealing with those. Um, but to answer your question is, do we, have we prioritized prevention? I would, I would say yes, we have prioritized uh, prevention. It's in the national security strategy of uh, this administration where if I can quote something, I think it's important that champion and institutionalize prevention and create a global prevention architecture with the help of civil society, private partners, and the technology industry. That a lot of those components and those partners are already addressed in the in the task force. And the and the challenge I think for us is how do we how do we mobilize that and how do we tailor their uh, ability and their capacity to to engage in their in their own industry. We talked a little. Uh, the task force um, report talks uh, a lot about local communities. I think we would certainly agree that um, they are the first line of defense. You can't get this done without having the local communities buy in. I think Nancy, you referenced earlier in the um, in your presentation, you know, two. 
uh, almost co-located um, uh, uh, population centers in Tunisia and why it takes place in one and not, and not the other. If you can't get the local communities to buy into it, it's really tough to get at the problem. And what does that mean, local communities? This, it's, it includes even families and schools and the law enforcement and the, and, and the governance or lack of governance in those communities to be able to, to, to address the prevention aspect. Um, I think that um, also there, it's clearly, as our other panel members have indicated, the United States can't do this alone. We don't have the resources. And more importantly, we also need the political will and the engagement of all the other communities and the governments um, to address prevention. However you want to define it, it really does, it's, a, it's not just a whole of government, it's a whole, it's a global effort. We need the diplomatic engagement and we also need the resources for it. And I want to just highlight a couple of examples of where we have, and oh, for those who asked about women, absolutely. Um, in the communities. It's not just women who are sometimes the first ones who detect their family members who are, who are drifting towards the recruitment and mobilization, but let's face it, women are also becoming the perpetrators of terrorists, and how do we get at that? Is there something distinctive? Is there something going on there that we've missed? But going back to sort of what we've tried to do as examples of addressing um, the, uh, the, especially bringing the international community get together at the community level, we have the Strong Cities Network that really brings together cities at the community level, American cities and international cities to address and to share best practices that they have used in their communities to address that. We've harnessed the Global Community Engagement and Resilience Fund, which frankly was started back in 2014-15, where it was supposed to be and it was envisioned as a very large fund where the international donors could come together to address the resilience uh, and engagement in, in local communities. To be frank, it hasn't been funded anywhere near the way it should be. Uh, and, and again, that's an issue of making sure the international, uh, the governments uh, are also mobilized, because after all, they're the ones who can and uh, do have uh, big checkbooks to be able to write on, on that one. Um, Again, we've mobilized the United Nations. Do we do it enough? Probably not, but they are mobilized and they've, we've helped to create the Counterterrorism uh, Bureau there. And finally, when you look at the definition of what is prevention, and you, you, sometime it may, sometimes we find that it may be too difficult to come to a very good definition, but in, the global, in creating the Global Counterterrorism Forum, that is a place where the communities, the private sector, and our governments, and the NGO community can, can come together and at least talk about the best practices on how you de-radicalize. How are, how are they addressing radicalization and mobilization? Um, so we are trying. Uh, clearly, uh, we have a long way to go. Uh, but there are uh, very good examples of at least efforts to bring the, co the international community together, both at the very technical operational levels, but also at the, um, at the government level, the policymaker level, to try to address this problem. But again, it's a long-term problem, and it, and it manifests itself very differently in very different parts of the world. Let's do another round with all of you, and then we're gonna go to the audience, uh, to all of you for your comments and questions. Um, Dr. Natali, let me, let me just ask you this. 
what were your reactions to what you've heard? Are you, were there points that were made here that, because you didn't have the benefit, you went first, and the others were after. Uh, but, you know, what, uh, what were your thoughts? Was there something additionally you wanted to comment on? And also, let me stick this in. You know, there's the Global Fragility Act, and it might be worth also making a mention of that because it's important there's a synergy here of this report and also the elements of the Global Fragility Act. And having you know, the executive branch, legislative branch, and synergy on this key issue, I think is crucial. So both, I wanna give you a chance to comment on what you've heard and then maybe on that. Thank you. Um, oh, you got your mic, yep. <laughs> okay, Rian. Um, a couple of comments. Um, I will go back on the definition. Believe it or not, if there were 12, General Nagata, we're probably down to 10. Because, let's start with, there's a really great example. We had um, acting assistant administrator, uh, Admiral Tim Zimmer, who's uh, at USAID, and myself had two very different de definitions, or my bureau, on what conflict prevention should be. And we literally started like this. It took some time. We met. We came down to this. We literally have. Now, that's two of us, so we're, well down, we're down to 10. But we submitted that to the NSC, and that is our working definition. And, you know, whatever words you want to use, just I, I say a couple of things about definitions. The broader and more expansive you, do, you go, the more difficult it is to have to measure and, and, and prove those metrics. If you want to use words like sustainable peace, you'll be doing this as a never-ender process. It's a very admirable goal, but just be very careful about whatever definition you choose, we have to operationalize it, measure it, and, and carry it out. So USAID and state, we do have a, a, a shared definition. Um, there is one point also on, on prevention. Another thing that CSO does, and I'm, I'm very proud and pleased to announce that we're about to launch this in a week or so, is our instability monitoring assessment platform. It's, it's called IMAP. And we are getting into the forecasting business, if we're not already. And that is to say, um, this is a force screen, almost like an op center, where we are creating instability indexes. This will be available to the 70,000 plus people at the State Department and eventually to all of folks out of, of state, but we monitor um, in live time conflict, instability, there's different types of conflict in every part of the world, you can tap on it. So these are the kinds of things that we want to use as an early warning tool that we can then provide as the types of data analytics um, to our policymakers. Um, and again, I, I go into, you asked about the Global Fragility Act. We are aware of it. We have at State Department policy planning working on white papers on uh, uh, fragility so that we're in sync. We are working again with USAID to come up with a concept paper on a way forward, hoping that in preparation for a Fragility Act to be planned and, and again linking it to uh, the USIP task force findings. So we're, we're on it um, and we're, we're preparing for it. Thanks. Thank you. And General, uh, just a few brief comments from you on any uh, point that you've heard that you want to respond to made by your colleagues here on the panel, but also um, talk a little bit about what is the role of the military in all of this? Uh, uh, you know, does the military have a role? Um. Well, I don't think they'd let me back in the Pentagon if I said the military doesn't have <laughs> So maybe that's exactly what I should say. I, I'm not sure I want to go back to the Pentagon. I, I don't work in the Pentagon right now, obviously. Um, the, uh, I'll start with the second one first. Um, the, I, I do believe, you know, 
I have spent the last 18 years of my life in what can only be imperfectly styled as the kinetic fight. Um, me and thousands of my colleagues, um, not just American, international colleagues. And um, our ability, when necessary, to use physical force against violent extremism needs to be preserved and where we can strengthen. But we have made incredible strides, in, particularly in the last 18 years, through, because of the press of necessity, we had to get a lot better. Our ability today, after 18 years of experimentation, extraordinary investments, and a great deal of sacrifice to, to win the kinetic contest with a terrorist group is perhaps unmatched in history. That said, as um, um, the previous panel mentioned, uh, matter of fact, the governor mentioned this, there are more terrorists today than when we started. So we're not solving the problem with kinetic force. It's necessary to prevent an imminent threat, what have you. So, and the, the Department of Defense, the United States military is not as set up to be a, a prevention executor, but we can provide powerful forms of assistance and support. And, and I, I think that, that what the military should be considering, and I know many of my colleagues are considering this, and how can the, how can the military be an, a more effective enabler, mostly of civilians, mostly of civilian agencies, uh, indigenous communities, what have you. We've got to do this carefully because being a military force carries some perception baggage with it. But if we're careful and we're imaginative, I, I could foresee a day, and I hope we achieve a day, where the military is a more powerful ally, a more effective advocate for, a, mess, a more effective and <clears throat> more imag imaginative enabler of of non-military people, non-military organizations that inevitably have to be on the front lines of prevention. Um, as to your first question, um, what I thought of repeatedly as I, as I was listening to my colleagues on the panel is um, something about the strategic context that I believe we are in. Uh, and I'm going to say this a little over simply just to be brief. The world and our adversaries are not waiting for us to figure out what the heck we're trying to do in prevention. Uh, the, the world is increasingly moving out in its own directions and, and not waiting for us. In, increase, in fact, I would argue there are some people who are, they, they've stopped caring about whether or not we're going to fix ourselves in the prevention arena. Um, now, that may be unfair, but I, I do believe there's evidence that some people have just I've just made the assumption the United States is never going to get serious about this and they're just going to have to find their own way. Um, we have to become far more willing than I believe we currently are in experimenting with how to successfully prevent violent extremism. And I'm using the word experimenting or experimentation very deliberately. I do not think we can credibly state, we know all the formulas, all the methods, all the approaches, all the effective employment of resources, all the effective policies we ought to embrace to successfully deal, to successfully prevent the next generation of terrorists from being created at the strategic level. We, we, it's not that we know nothing. And there are thousands of heroic Americans and international actors who are striving in this arena every single day, many at peril of their lives. So I'm not trying to denigrate what they're doing today. But 
at, at, again, I, I promise to be brief, so let me, let me just use an analogy here. Um, I, whenever I think about this, and uh, there's a few people who have heard me say this before, I, I think of something that I remember learning in school. It was after Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and he was being showered with praise for inventing the light bulb, and he said to several people during that time, I didn't invent the light bulb. I invented 900 ways not to have a light bulb. The only thing you people remember is the last experiment that succeeded. What I remember, if I hadn't failed 900 times, you wouldn't have a light bulb. Now, I'm not suggesting we should fail 900 times <laughs> at preventing terrorism before we find the, the answer. But the grain of truth that I believe is in that story is we're not going to just magically leap from where we now are now to strategic success in preventing terrorism. We have to be willing to ruthlessly experiment, embrace the fact that we're going to fail often in order to find pathways to success. Now, ask yourself this question. When's the last time you heard a senior government official tell his workforce what, the, what successful tech sector companies are telling their workforce every day? Fail fast, fail often, hurry up and fail so we find the path to success faster than our competitors. I don't know if we're ever going to be willing to embrace such an idea in a mass, massive bureaucracy like the United States government, but we'd better try. All right. Uh, Chris and Alina, uh, let me ask both of your questions because I'm looking at time and I want to give them a chance to ask questions. So, Chris, lessons learned. You've been, I mentioned at the beginning, you've been in Burma, but you also were in Haiti, you were in Iraq. Are there lessons learned that you could put forward? And then let me just toss out Alina, then can we go to you quickly? And that is, uh, what do you think that uh, AID needs, the department needs, those who are in the field and actually dealing with the issue, what is needed now? So, lessons learned. Um, let me think of three things. One. What we haven't talked about today, which is the importance of that in-country coordination at the country team level. And what you need to do is to get the three Ds working together under Chief of Mission Authority to have the same theory of change that is based upon a sophisticated understanding of the political, economic, and social dynamics of a country. I've seen this. I've seen when it works, and I've seen when it hasn't. And there has to be a clear statement of our assumptions up front, as there haven't been in some of the cases where we've not been successful. Having that theory of change enables the ambassador and others to push back and say no on all the good offers of assistance that are not strategic and take up bandwidth and prevents the uh, good intentions with unintended consequences. Resources, it's not just a question of the, the amount of resources, it's the flexibility and the ability to reprogram. Too many resources, that can actually be a problem if they're not the right resources. Perspective, we need that long-term perspective Many times because of the immediate deteriorating of the immediacy to, to show results on an annual budget basis, we actually undermine accountability by making local organizations whose capacity we're trying to build focus on us instead of on the people they should be working for. And secondly, what it does is it undermines the local ownership. And if they don't own it, if they know we want it more than they do, then we've already failed. All right, thank you for that. Alina, a brief answer on the needs. I know uh, well, that's, uh, so I know that's a, 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 a challenging question, but. <laughs> I, 
I think I think there's a there's an aspect to the challenge of prevention, which is both long term, which I think, you know, we've been at this for quite a while, and we do need greater experimentation. But at the same time, when you're dealing with violent extremism or terrorism, you also have a very short term, and so more medium term issue. These terrorists. I mean, we can look back and say, how did the terrorists come about? But the reality is they are growing and there are more now than there were before. And when I look at the challenges that our bureau is facing, a very good example is the whole, what do we do with the foreign terrorist fighters? That is an immediate problem. And it's immediate problem because you have to, what, you can't just ha allow them to wander around the rest of the globe for however long uh, they're going to be around. But they're also in these uh, detention camps, for example. They're recruiting like crazy. And what are we doing about that? And that's a very, very short-term problem. So in, in, in trying to address the issue of prevention, it really, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty, there are many, many dimensions to it. And one of, the, one of the most important dimensions is, in fact, how do you address the, the foreign terrorist fighters and those who are found recruiting? Uh, many countries do not, including the developed um, world. Many countries don't even have the laws on the books that allow people to actually prosecute the terrorists. The, the ability to get the information and evidence off the battlefield, for example, in order to prosecute people, that's not, e that's not an easy thing to do. So we have, we have many dimensions of this to, 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 um, uh, to address, and it's, as I said earlier, it is an evolving, it's an evolving threat and it's an evolving challenge, and we, we're not very good at, at, um, at mobilizing our resources because they're relatively inflexible, as I think we all know, because we've tried to mobilize each other's resources, uh, but, um, but it's also how quickly can you turn around and, and experiment with new ways or bring about the ones that have been successful and apply them in other places. Um, so we do have a big challenge still ahead of us. All right, thank you all for that. Let's go to all of you. Uh, I noticed that there are these microphones over there. You're standing near one. Could you use it? <laughs> or he, uh, there we go. All right, and then, and then uh, I'm gonna go here, and then also down here. Let's get two, and then we'll come in the middle, and we'll come over there. Please, and if you'll identify yourself. We can't hear you, that mic's on. gotta be turned on or you gotta put it closer to yourself. Is it turned on? It's on, hello? Okay, please, okay. could you reintroduce and put it close to your Sure, uh, my name is Sean Connolly and I work for a British consultancy called Albany Associates. Um, Firstly, if we look at the end state, um, and I think this is a question for the general, uh, we have quite a nebulous set of goals there. Um, however, in my experience uh, in the field, both in the military and the uh, civilian world, the means and ways that we have are an ever-growing list. Uh, they're fairly comprehensive, but in my opinion, they're laden with values. Now, for example, every project that you implement will need to have a gender aspect to it. And that's not to say that these... Um, these values and these methodologies aren't uh, founded in previous successes and that they're not necessary. But what I've seen, and I think you can see on a macro scale in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, is that the beneficiaries, for want of a better word, don't want a lot of these measures implemented and they don't want these things to be part of the solution. So I guess my question is, What's more important, reaching this nebulous end state or spreading Western values? 
Okay, we'll come to the answer in a moment uh, that was directed to you, General. And you have a question, the hand down here, the gentleman right here in front. And while you're bringing it, there was also one that came in, I guess, online. And this was, if I understood correctly, it was for uh, Dr. Natali. Let me just interject this because I want to get as many questions. The question is, what are the quantifying key metrics that outline the prevention strategy of your agency? Okay, please. Um, thank you, panelists all. Um, my name is Chris Bosley. I'm lucky to work here at USIP. Um, my question is primar primarily probably for Chris uh, and General Nagata. Okay. Um, in a formal life, I work for the Intel community. Um, and during my time in the EIC, obviously we became very, very good at providing support to the kinetic fight. Uh, but maybe we were less good at providing that same kind of support to USAID, for example. Um, I was lucky enough in the IC to work for people who supported efforts to increase that support, but the systematic and bureaucratic barriers to that kind of coordination are vast. Um, and so I guess my question is, what kind of mechanisms can we use, and how important is it? Because maybe it's not important to institutionalize that kind of relationship between the IC and these prevention efforts that USAID and others are working on. Okay, let's work backwards. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind, uh, your name was invoked in that one, and then we'll go to the general and then to Dr. Natali. And let's try to give crisp answers so we can do another round. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I think um, that's an excellent question. And the, when we talk about the IC, it's, it's a two-way street, too, because USAID has a lot of very good information from the field on, going on. Um, I think we're doing much better now. I think we're evolving. Uh, certainly this past year, I've seen very robust interaction. When we think about standing up new bureaus with specific missions on conflict prevention and stabilization, that is a opportunity to rebuild those relationships to make sure that they're more intense and productive. Um, okay, all right, uh, General. And, and by the way, Alina, we'll get you in the next round. All right. Um, for the question regarding goal versus um, other other targets we could, should be seeking, like appropriate ways and means. Here's my view. Uh, first of all, I, I see no prospect uh, of achieving an effective international community agreement on what the goal is. Um, uh, the, I, I've, I still hear people say we're going to bring an end to terrorism. No, we're not. It's like saying we're going to bring an end to crime. Um, we, we certainly want to reduce it, but there's no real agreement that I'm aware of about how far do we want to, do we need to suppress this? So uh, I would argue we, we should be, until we can come up with something we all agree with, um, what we should be focused on is something that I hope everyone here already knows, that um, kinetic means of combating terrorism are very expensive and we've lavished means on them. But we, there's apparently no end to the amount of resources we can throw at hunting down terrorists and either arresting them or killing them. I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it. It's, it. It is important work, and frankly, I wouldn't have gotten a paycheck for the last 20 years if I hadn't done it. But, but uh, one thing I know for sure, effective prevention is not cheap, but is it? it is a tiny fraction of the money required to physically contest terrorists. So I think we should be closely, more closely examining what are the resource requirements to make prevention more effective? And on the second question, um, uh, I'll be very brief about this. Um, I believe that effective intelligence support for people that do prevention, people that do counter-messaging, people that contest extremist use of the internet, people that try to s prevent terrorist travel and the like, need just as much intelligence support as people like me 
that have had to physically target terrorists, but we have very little in terms of tradition, methodology, structure, or even emphasis on providing intelligence support for those kinds of CT activities. Okay, Dr. Natali. Thank you. Um, we don't have, um, CSO does both quantitative analytics and we're highly operational, we're out in the field. There's not one clear quantifiable metric that's a cookie cutter for all. It depends on the issue and it depends on the place. But what we certainly do is we'll send our people out in the field, work with all of the interagency, all of the folks, even like pe folks like people here at, at USIP, and find out what the best practices are, create a baseline, and before any program starts, we have to start with them. And I'll give you an example. I just came back from Niger, and I had the opportunity to go out to the, to the border town of Difa, which is on the Nigerian border, and this is a Boko Haram um, uh, stronghold. And one of the programs that we do, and one of our lines of effort is defections. Uh, we do um, security sector stabilization, but getting fighters to defect, and then USAID, we work closely with, they do the reintegration part. Now, before I left, people said, this is success, it's fantastic. I said, well, how are we measuring success? We have 200 people in a defection camp. Well, how many Boko Haram fighters are there? Well, there's thousands, but there's 200. And so then I speak to the Minister of Interior, I speak to all these people, and they're telling me, well, wait a minute, we don't want this defection camp, we're actually gonna get these guys to speak directly to the tribal chief and defect on their own. So, you know, we, we have to, again, as General Nagata said, it doesn't mean you stop, but you have to wonder, after two years, why aren't these guys de defecting? Then we go speak to the tribal chiefs, the religious leaders, and they're saying, well, these guys didn't come and apologize to us. So now, you know, so what are the metrics? The metrics are, if the goal, what is the strategic end state? To prevent foreign fighters from returning to the field, right, and, and engaging in terrorist activities, then I have to have a number to that. That's one example. CSO also does countering violent extremism. So we are working on creating these baseline metrics, and we have one in the Western Balkans. We have one right now going on in Africa. So these metrics of CVE baseline will be then shared and used throughout the interagency. These are just examples of how we can move forward in addressing these fragile states with very clear metrics that are appropriate to each locality and then they have to be readjusted over time. Thank you. We, we've come to the end of the session, but I'm gonna take two more questions, and Alina, you'll, we'll go to you first. We'll go to the woman who's way up there, and then there is a hand right here, the gentleman down here. I apologize to others of you on the timing, and if you'll introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Keira Kostredzi, and I'm with the Albanian Service of Voice of America. And either Dr. Natali or Ms. Romanowski can answer my question. Both of you mentioned foreign fighters. And a couple of days ago, uh, Kosovo took in quite a few of them with their families and um, many women. And of course, this is a challenge. So I wanted to know how is the US uh, going to support Kosovo's efforts to either reintegrate or work in this um, direction with the foreign fighters. And then, is there a double standard to having Kosovo receive, a fragile country receive the foreign fighters, while many Western countries have resisted right. um, receiving them, even though the administration has asked them to? Thank All you. All right, thank you, and sir. Yeah, I don't know you know or not, but uh, 
there are 10 years or 12 years girls. Who, who you please forgive I'm me? I'm Sufi Lagari with the Sindhi Foundation. Thank you. There are girls 10 or 12 years old in Sindh province. Every month, 20 to 25 girls are con forcefully converted to be a Muslim and forcefully marriages to the Muslim. It's a non-state actor. It's not a non-state actor. It is a Pakistan's sponsored, state-sponsored. The guy name is Miyamitu. He is protected by Pakistani army. General, believe me, you can Google it. So your question. So my question is, if you, not just question, my even recommendation to the USAID, if Pakistan already on FATF list, I don't know what other steps the US government can, can take it. Maybe USAID stop the aid to the Pakistan to pre save the girls. Okay. Uh, maybe other, you can tell the, what are the other steps they can take it. Let's go first, uh, Alina, on the first question. I said I was gonna go to you first and we'll just quickly come down the row here. Yeah, on the question generally of foreign terrorist fighters, I'll say that our policy and the administration's policy is that, you know, we want governments to take back their foreign terrorist fighters. I will also readily admit that there are countries that are very reluctant in doing it, but we applaud those who are finding a way to take them back. Uh, to answer your question specifically about what we do to help um, countries who do take them back. Obviously, we have um, you know, our legats at post. We have uh, regional legal advisors in the Balkans, for example, that are working directly with the governments and also train prosecutors and, and judges to be able to you know, prosecute if necessary um, and then uh, incarcerate. We also work in Kosovo and other countries are part of our global counterterrorism forum, which again, where we share the best practices. So we are not simply saying take, uh, take your foreign fighters and forget it. We, uh, we have had in place uh, a number of, of, of efforts in which we can help these, uh, the governments and the countries who take them back. But ultimately, it is really the countries that have to figure out how they are going to uh, de-radicalize and reintegrate their, uh, the foreign fighters uh, who they are taking back. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, let's go to you next, and then I'm gonna come to Dr. Natali, if the general doesn't mind, because of their names being invoked. No, thank you for raising the issue. It shows the complexity of the local conditions in the country which we work, and we take these issues very seriously. And we work through them with the ambassador and our uh, State Department colleagues in, in the field. Uh, it also reinforces one other uh, point discussion that we've been having here. For us, prevention isn't the end state. The end state is resilient and responsive and people-centered government. And so uh, prevention is how you get, one of the ways you get there. So we don't say one and done, prevent it, done. It's part of the continuum toward that journey of self-reliance, Ambassador, as you meant, to a more resilient uh, nation state. All right, and Dr. Natali. Thank you. Um, I can't speak to Kosovo per se, but I can, I can, I can address the way that we do approach um, how we do defections, and uh, I agree with my colleague. Um, we work with national governments, and it's their country, it's their ways of addressing their foreign fighters. We don't specifically work foreign fighters. It's how do we get people who are in any form of group to defect? So again, if there, there are best practices. Is there a national framework for defectors? Is there a way to reintegrate them into society? What we've learned already, you can do all of the messaging, and we've been very successful, or quite, 
on getting people to defect, but if you don't have the reintegration part, these people will be sitting in the detention center for years and then want to go back. So um, there are best practices, but we work very closely with national governments and local partners so that they can obviously own this project uh, with our best practices in mind. Thanks. With the general's permission, I'm going to close us. Uh, thank you. I First, I want to go back and thank um, Nancy Limborg and the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you for your sponsorship. Uh, Governor Keene is here. Thank you again for your leadership on the, uh, on the task force. Uh, uh, very, very much appreciated. And what a terrific panel, uh, really. Uh, very, very substantive, very distinguished panel, panel. Please join me in thanking them. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.